Chapter, Revelations. Keiko spent the next few hours going through the information Burke sent her. She was amazed at the level of detailed material Daryl Fletcher kept at his disposal. He had to keep the information secretly, because what she saw was damaging to both the company and Benson Rockford. A lot of the information was on an external hard drive. She looked at the directory and randomly chose several files to read. Each file had a page number, where later in the report, it described what type of file it was, its size, the application associated with it, and other descriptive details, along with the sample text. If it was associated with a word processing application, Keiko looked at a file called imj.doc. She ignored the file's description and started reading the text. The job is to take place no earlier or later than the prearranged date. There is to be no bodily harm to anyone on site. As stated before, a confined devastation would be greatly appreciated. Deposits will be placed in the account you notified us of. Half the amount now to show how serious we are and half later, when the job is done, be forewarned, though your reputation precedes you, this job requires the utmost secrecy. Daryl Fletcher, VP of R&D at Gensum. Keiko read the text again, and then closed the file to reflect on what she had just read. Now she had proof Fletcher was soliciting the skills of a professional arsonist to start a fire at Iron Mountain. It didn't say anything about Benson Rockford, nor did it suggest there was anyone else in Fletcher's confidence. She slowly found several more letters referring to the planned fire, and one that even went so far as to mention Iron Mountain by name. Keiko was amazed a dead man could incriminate himself so well from the grave. She saw the file named Jean X and wondered why she skipped over it before. There were several Excel and text files, but only one PowerPoint file associated with it. She read the file description of one of the text files. Human genome decoding has led to the discovery of a novel gene with widespread implications of promoting substantially elevated healing with the production of a novel B cell found exclusively in the human appendix. A gene for elevated healing a novel B cell? That can't be right. Nothing like that exists or could exist. Was this the special project Rockford didn't want to talk about and what Fletcher wanted to hide? She thought. Keiko searched a hard drive for a Gene X document file. When she accessed it, she waited impatiently as it loaded. It was written by Daryl Fletcher. It read, Gensum and Pentamer Pharmaceuticals have been in collaboration for years over many successful and rather unsuccessful research projects. It is just a matter of time before we emerge, making us the most powerful company in our field ever known. However, this day would have never come if Project Gene X had ever been allowed to survive. It all started with the sudden drive to decode the human genome. Many companies saw this opportunity to explore uncharted territory in the treatment of many genetic disorders. So our focus was on genes that were either suppressed or mutated. Gene repair was our goal, but in our research, we never imagined finding anything like this. A benign gene normally non-active in 99% of the population and mutated in the rest, causing acute appendicitis. When active, it produces a variant B cell that triggers a complex and not fully understood chain of events, elevating a person's natural immune system and giving rise to a complex protein. Such a heightened immunity was projected to reverse genetic disorders, eradicate cancerous growth, efficiently combat viral infections, and maintain a healthy state of life not requiring occasional medication. It was also suggested the average life expectancy would more than double. 
Our proteomics department, with the aid of the latest equipment in crystallography, was able to synthesize the complex protein. See attachments. Systems biology used public databases and computer maps of cellular interactions to identify several immune pathways enhanced by the presence of this protein. The protein was also discovered to affect the level of variant B cells, a sort of self-regulation. However, experimental testing on laboratory animals failed, since the protein was novel only to the human biological system. But when we received private backing, the results were astounding. The most remarkable case was one young boy of three diagnosed with terminal amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, a progressively fatal neuromuscular disease leading to degenerative physical capabilities. A single low dose of the protein was administered subcutaneously, and within 24 hours, the boy's condition began to reverse. Within two weeks, the boy was released in perfect condition. His parents none the wiser to what treatment had reversed the condition. His blood test revealed heightened levels of the protein, indicating that only a small amount was necessary to properly activate the gene to naturally produce it. The boy was in perfect health and will remain so for the rest of his life. The boy's parents called it a miracle. It would be interesting to see how long he'll live, 200, maybe 300 years, who knows we're in a totally new era here, except for several instances in the Bible's Old Testament, where men were recorded to live for centuries. The Bible also shows that over a period of time, the average lifespan dropped. If this was an accurate recording, then it would be the perfect evidence of a progressive human genetic disorder that we all still experience today. Several other patients were tested with the same fascinating results as the boy, but we halted all future human tests. There really was no choice in our decision to stop testing when we finally understood what we held in our hands, the total eradication of disease and suffering for the human race, and on the other hand, the total demise of the pharmaceutical industry. With a single small dose, a sick person would be cured of any disease forever, while a healthy person would be guaranteed never to be sick again. It was a moral dilemma that wasn't deliberated for long. The pharmaceutical industry stressed that their goal was to improve quality of life, but that their true goal was to make money. And with this protein, there was no foreseeable future for us. See schematics on projected cost in dispensing of the treatment compared to the eventual lack of future treatable conditions. It's projected that within a decade, the pharmaceutical industry would cease to function. Another frightening suggestion was that treated individuals would be able to transfer this ability to their offspring, leading to a reduced use of hospitals and medication within the next 50 years. I've prepared a PowerPoint presentation to put forward all supporting data obtained on this protein. Keiko accessed the file and watched the presentation for the next hour. There was detailed information she understood, thanks to her education, and some requiring further deliberation. But overall, what she saw was compelling and eliminated any lingering doubt. What she discovered was that when the GeneX proteins were first administered into the bloodstream in the form of an immune-stimulatory complex, ISCOM, it fused to the outer membranes of nearby cells and deposited the protein in the outer region within the cell, called the cytosol. The protein was then transported to the endoplasmic reticulum, where it was bound and returned to the cell surface. Now, when it was transported to the surface, it presented itself to a T-cell. A T-cell confers cell-mediated immunity and cooperates with B-cells, enabling them to produce antibodies against a protein that is normally transported to the cell surface, such as the GeneX protein. However, in this case, the T-cell's interaction with the bound GeneX protein caused a different response. Instead of an immune response to the presented GeneX protein, the T-cell characteristics changed, 
which had a cascading effect on B-cells, myeloid cells, megakaryocytes, erythrocyte-type cells, and ultimately, stem cells. The change enhanced the immunological functions of all these, increasing their efficiency more than 50-fold, while the stem cells started producing the novel B-cell. Keiko rubbed her forehead. This was all too unbelievable to process. She stood up and paced the room randomly, mentally checking herself that what she read was true instead of fiction. She sat back down and continued reading. There was only one Microsoft Word file left to look at, called Insurance. The words were again Daryl Fletcher's, but it was what he said that took Keiko's amazement to yet another level. If you're reading this, then I must be dead and I pray it wasn't painful. My name is Daryl Fletcher and I was the president of the research and development department at Gensum Pharmaceuticals. If there was anything I could change in my past, it would have been my association with Benson Rockford, the agency he brought into our projects, which I will talk about later in the levels of deceit and secrecy I was forced to embrace. It all started when Benson and I got caught up in the fervor of decoding the human genome. We discussed our approach and decided not to follow the road well traveled, but rather a novel approach by using our proteomics and crystallography departments. At this point, I don't mean to talk about the data and the fine points about our research. That's all on other files. I need to talk about the most profound gene to be discovered in human history, Gene X. Gene X is a benign gene, normally non-active in 99% of the population and mutated in the rest, leading to possible acute appendicitis. When active, it produces a variant B cell, triggering a complex and not fully understood chain of events, elevating a person's natural immune system and giving rise to a complex protein. Such a heightened immunity was projected to reverse genetic disorders, eradicate cancerous growth, efficiently combat viral infections, and maintain a healthy state of life not requiring occasional medication. It was also suggested that the average life expectancy would more than double. However, there are side effects to the treatment that weren't recorded. All treated patients reached a mental potential they would've never obtained if it weren't for the filthy environment, poor quality of life, and this recessive gene. Normally, an overly intelligent person would be a positive result. But since this basically happened overnight, the subjects developed a sense of superiority complex. Since they didn't have this attribute from birth, their adjustment to increased mental abilities led every single one of them to a poor detest and even resent those around them who could not keep up with their heightened abilities. Despite this problem, treatment with Gene X proved to be the answer that mankind was looking for, a sort of food of the gods, a single dose miracle drug that would have caused each person to live as they were created to live. Debilitating diseases would have been a thing of the past, life expectancy would have skyrocketed, and mankind would have entered a new era. Now, I use the past tense because my then-trustworthy friend and associate, Benson Rockford, convinced me that our study of Gene X would move more quickly if we accepted outside help to cut corners and thrust us into human clinical trials. He said this group was so high in the government that even the FDA couldn't touch them. So our project became of great interest to a secret government military agency, and to this day, I still don't know who they are. It was only recently that both Benson and I realized it wasn't Gene X they were interested in. They did not care what we did with Gene X, for I guess they already knew that if we went public with this information, it would be the death of our industry in just a few decades or less. They were more interested in some other project arising from the discovery of Gene X. What is it? I don't know but something more important than the discovery of this gene. I can't imagine what it can be. Now, before you label me as crazy, look at the data, all the information and proof you need are there. 
When it came to Benson and me, well, let's just say we were well taken care of. With all of this said, I still regret the day we discovered Gene X. Even though Gene X was shelved, my conscience still nagged me about the moral question everyone associated with this project wanted to ignore. Do we have the right to keep this product from the public? Did we dare keep mankind in sickness in order to capitalize off their treatments? The answer is no. Who are we to play God? If we found the cure for cancer and hit it, wouldn't we be considered murderers? I know a cure would stifle the money being funded for research and other huge organizations erected around the cure cancer cause. Many people would lose their jobs and hundred others would have to find another debilitating disease to rally around. Would they prevent such a cure from ever arising to keep everything status quo? I pray they would find the strength to put people first instead of themselves. So, who are we to play God? Gene X wasn't discovered by accident. It was its time to be revealed, and what did we do? We hid it like the cowards we are. I'm ashamed to be called a scientist devoted to discovering cures to help my fellow man, when it's really just to fill my pockets with drug money. Drug money taken from the sick to keep them sick and coming back for more of a temporary solution for their pain. It's this shame I battle with every day. No one knows how I feel and will never know. I don't trust this government organization Benson brought in. We never see them, we never see the work they're working on, and we're only told very little. I fear they're trying to develop Gene X into some kind of weapon for seeker operations. Gene X will definitely bring a person to the state of natural healing we have the potential to have, but that's not just it. There must have been a reason why this gene recessed. I'm confused. You see, maybe we're really not ready for it. Maybe Gene X was a genetic anomaly in the past and was corrected in time by recessing. So why don't we just treat people with Gene X and allow their children to evolve to their full potential? No, these things must occur naturally. If we jump out of schedule, then the effects could be more devastating than beneficial. Gene X recipients would be outcasts in a sea of commonality. Gene X offspring wouldn't be that better off either. Maybe it was good that we burned all the documents. However, I don't know what I can do to squash the mysterious government project, but I do know I just might die trying. I pray whoever reads this has the power to stop this madness. Keiko read several more pages of Daryl's personal distaste for how Gene X would bring an end to all civilization and foster an era of pure chaos. Noticing Daryl's shift from fact to paranoia, Keiko quickly skimmed through the last several pages. However, she was reminded of the horrible nightmare she had some time ago. Did this Gene X have any bearing on the devastation she saw in her dream and that she had an opportunity to stop from happening? She looked out the window and wondered what to do next. The dark, she all official listened carefully to the report from one of his agents in Peru. All of the indigenous Agaruna inhabitants were dead and the bodies were being transported to a disposal site in the Atlantic Ocean. The Agaruna village was being cleared of any evidence of the experiment to make it look as though the inhabitants just mysteriously disappeared. As for Fedienka, he died an excruciating death under the dispassionate eyes of the Sheol agent who infected him. His body was currently being transported back to headquarters for a thorough autopsy. Overall, the experiment in Peru was a success. With no one present in his office, the dark, she, all official smiled devilishly once the report was finished. He stood up, hands behind his back and paced the room. 
His mind raced as he considered how the new world would look after the purge. The viral growth of humanity on the planet would finally be quenched, restoring order and a semblance of harmony once again. A peaceful world where he and the select others would live hundreds of years without the wicked disorder permeating the planet today. No more disease, no more social disorder, and no more striving for a meager salary to maintain a ridiculous lifestyle, masking the lack of harmony ignored yet felt within every person. Soon, very soon, he mumbled. Clearing his head and refocusing on the next steps, he sat back at his desk and pulled up the schematics of the upcoming global positioning of Sheol agents to deliver the first phase of the infection to the populace. He then examined the present production state of the delivery system and the Genovirian. In a few days, both would be at levels to support the first phase. After the elaborate distribution of both to the agents around the world, he figured the coordinated infection would commence in two weeks. Chapter Endings Agent Martin rushed into his office to take the phone call in his cell. With the door closed, he nervously answered the call from Voice 3. Are you in a private area? asked Voice 3. Yes, yes, he said, rather too quickly. Good. How many agents can you spare? Agents? Um. You mean normal agents? Nobody in lead with us, right? You're the only one in your department in lead with us, Martin, said Voice 3, agitated. Now, how many can you reassign without suspicion? It took him some time to realize that for the very first time, the voice he was so accustomed to listening to seemed apprehensive. I think maybe four, but it depends on what they were being reassigned to. Make it six, and the assignment well justified, so you'll have no problems with your superiors with this move. Let's just say in the next few minutes you'll be visited from one of my trusted associates, another FBI agent. Do whatever he says, Martin. It's that important. Yes, sir. Can I ask what's so urgent? That's all, said Voice 3, terminating the call. For the next 30 minutes, Martin sat nervously in his office, waiting for the mysterious FBI agent. He dared to think that Voice 3 sounded almost scared during the call and wondered what could shake him so deeply. Martin quickly went over all that he'd done that was asked of him and came to the conclusion he had done nothing wrong. Agent Carter was finishing up her assignment while Agent C. Cole Lee was in an induced coma. All ties to the Iron Mountain Fire were efficiently severed. As he continued to ponder his actions, a knock on his door quickly brought him back. Standing outside the door was a rather serious-looking agent displaying his badge while waiting for permission to enter. Receiving permission, the agent entered the room, closed the door behind him, and sat down comfortably in front of Martin. You're expecting me, I hope. You got the call, he asked. What call? Asked Martin, assuming nothing. He had to be sure this was the man he was waiting for. The agent took a deep breath. The call you received requesting six of your agents to be transferred to me for an urgent matter. Martin sized up the man. He was of average built, middle-aged, and exhibited nothing extraordinary about him. Other than his straightforwardness, there was nothing particular about him. His current title was even a level below his own. Why is he considered more of an asset than me? Martin thought. Yes, I was informed over 30 minutes ago. Now would you kindly tell me why I need to release six of my agents to you? Martin said, exuding a level of superiority in his voice. 
The agent rubbed his chin before releasing a suppressed laugh. You, you're an interesting one. Here we sit, agents of the same organization, and I'm not talking about the FBI, and the only thing on your mind is who's the alpha male. The agent laughed again, priceless, just priceless. Not pleased by the laughter, Martin leaned closer to the man. I don't find any of this funny. What I want is for you. Oh, shut up, will you, said the agent. This goes far beyond your. Who's the bigger fish in this ridiculous little pond you establish yourself in? I, enough John, I don't have time for this anymore. I'm going to tell you why I need your agents. You'll show me the dossiers for each, and then I'll disappear. You'll never see me again, I hope. And you can go back to being kingfish of this slush pond. Martin remained quiet. The use of his first name was a blatant act of disrespect. But the last thing he wanted to do was to get into a confrontation with a man sent by Sheol. He didn't want a report saying he was not cooperative. Obviously, the agent didn't care what Martin thought of him. He waved his hand. Fine. Go ahead. The agent smiled. Okay. Let's make this brief. There are events outside of what you are aware of that are beginning to spiral out of our control. We need to regain the upper hand and need to judiciously expand our level of investigative abilities. Unfortunately, many of our direct agents are currently assigned to another project and can't be deterred from it. So with much hesitation, we require more manpower, and the only way to do that is to acquire outside assistance. And what do you need assistance in? Asked Martin when the agent paused. After thinking about how much to tell Martin, the other agent said, all I can mention is we have a lead on a possible murder suspect and need resources to continue our investigation. Must be a pretty big murder to get us involved. I know we can't say much, but I need more for this transfer to look reasonable. The agent grabbed his chin and rubbed it vigorously. The cruise ship that went down off the North Carolina shore has led to a missing individual we think may have been killed by his wife. We believe she's part of a dangerous cult and may have something to do with the attack on the ship. A cult? said Martin. Yep, I know. I don't think it's related to the one you have Agent Carter assigned to. Martin couldn't suppress his shock at how knowledgeable the agent was. Right, I don't think it'll be a problem, considering what you just said. The two spent the next few minutes going over the dossiers until the agent was satisfied with a group of six. Okay, said the agent, rising to his feet. Meet with your people and tell them to meet me in the conference room on the second floor precisely one hour from now. The agent proceeded to the door. Wait a minute, Martin said quickly. How long will this investigation be for, and what's your name? I need to tell them who to report to. The agent turned to Martin and smiled devilishly. How long? When it's all over, John. When it's done. And my name is Agent Brown. The flickering lights of the long corridor slowly passed before the dark, Sheol official. His steps were slow and deliberate as he glanced at each door. Each door represented years of hard work and devotion by numerous individuals, sacrificing both personal time and time with family for the advancement of the project. All those years, he waited patiently for this day, and at times lost faith it would ever come. He followed the bend in the corridor. Still glancing at each room, he paused at one door and opened it. As he expected, there was no one in the laboratory. It was the place where Fedienka's inspirations led him on a dangerous path to power and influence. It worked for a while, but it was a dangerous game he played and lost. 
His fingers flew over the keyboard of one of the laboratory computers as he tried to access the local server. His efforts yielded numerous error codes. The dark, she-all official smiled, turned off the computer, and returned to the corridor. A serene peace started to wash over him as he began to relax more. The day of the Great Purge was very close at hand. His dreams would soon become a reality once these small little nuisances were taken care of. A thumping sound from one of the doors up ahead caused him to pause. Upon walking carefully into the laboratory, he saw a leg protruding from a corner bench. Sumi saw a scientist gasping for air while his hands slowly massaged his neck. As the man stared at the dark, Sheol official, his eyes became lucid for the last few seconds of his life. Everything finally became clear as he pointed a finger at his supervisor. As he expired, air escaped his lungs for the last time, and his hands fell to his sides. The dark, she-all official straightened his tie, reassured himself that his gas mask was on correctly, and continued his rounds of the building. Hours later, he sat comfortably in the passenger seat of his helicopter as the complex faded into the distance. He looked at the she-all agent piloting the helicopter, and received a nod indicating they were a safe enough distance from the building. And so it begins, he said as he pressed the activation button on the remote. In the distance, a bright light engulfed the valley, followed by a series of thunderous explosions. The pilot easily handled the shockwave as it passed the helicopter within seconds. Knowing the complex was now engulfed in unnaturally hot flames fueled by the chemicals, carefully placed throughout it, the dark, she-all official relaxed in his chair. It had been far too long since the last time he rested. This next phase felt strange yet exhilarating to him. In just a few days, the Great Purge would begin. Pumping her legs faster than normal, Keiko continued her daily morning six-mile run around the nearby lake. Jogging normally helped clear her thoughts, but today it didn't help at all. She was stuck in a place she'd never been before and found difficulty in getting out of. Her breath became more ragged as she failed to realize she was now in an all-out sprint. After a few minutes, she stopped running. With hands on knees and desperately trying to regain her breath, she looked at her watch. Immediately, thoughts of her current situation Bush whacked her psyche. Keiko couldn't remember a time in her life when a decision became so difficult to make. Throughout her life, it was never hard for her to make a decision after logically looking at and weighing all the possible outcomes. Even in graduate school, when she decided to pursue a career as an FBI agent instead of staying with the sciences, it was a hard decision, but never a decision resulting from continual inaction. As she thought of Pastor James, she realized everything was slowly returning to normal. Since he was becoming more unavailable to answer some of her follow-up questions, he had to catch up on his other responsibilities. He was even spending less time with Bart due to his schedule. However, the one constant in all of this was Martin. He was slow in returning Keiko's request to either return to Washington, D.C. or visit Brooke, who was still in a coma. To her, it seemed as though he deliberately wanted her to stay where she was until every last detail was finalized, even though her report was nearly finished and didn't need fine-tuning. She felt alone to mull over the information sent by Brooke, since it was unethical to share this information with anyone outside any government agency, and she definitely didn't trust Martin. So for days, she sat on it, not knowing what to do next. Her thoughts no longer focused on the nightmare she previously had, but instead focused on what steps to take. What am I doing? She thought, this isn't like me, 
damn it, do something. Looking around, there was no one in sight. She was alone, but she was always alone, erecting walls around her and letting no one get too close. Even Brooke really never knew her deepest fears. None of her family really understood her. The people at the agency always kept their distance, and she never put her trust in anyone. However, she recently allowed someone to fill her head with the notion of a symbiotic spiritual relationship. Pastor James expressed it in scientific terms to help bridge her understanding, but all along he was talking about the Holy Spirit residing in Christians and demonic spirits in others. It was something to ponder and not really take seriously without actual concrete proof. But then the revelation of Daryl Fletcher's files totally shook her foundation altogether. Nothing fit into the boxes she came to understand and was so comfortable with. Nothing's sacred anymore, she mumbled. She started jogging again and made a mental note not to let her thoughts transform her trot into a sprint again. As her feet pounded the path, she started thinking about Daryl's files again. Everything pointed to a miracle cure and not the deadly weapon he so ludicrously stated. It made perfect sense why the fire at Iron Mountain was started in the first place. They were trying to hide the discovery. The vision of Prophet Barabbas' nightmare flashed before her eyes. She stopped nearly losing her footing. Pastor James' vision then flashed before her. She stumbled and fell to her knees. Her nightmare then flashed before her. And as clearly as someone talking to her, she heard her mother. Why, Keiko? Why couldn't you stop this? You had a chance to stop all this and now everyone's dead because of you. Couldn't you see? With your education and current position, you're the right person in time to stop this, but you didn't. And because of that, everyone's dead. What's wrong with me? She mumbled, grabbing her head. Answering her question, the same words from her mother repeated themselves. Shut up. I must be going mad. She screamed. After minutes of trying to regain her composure, she looked around the lake. She was alone. Kanko shook her head, took a deep breath, stood up, and made a decision. She pumped her legs, hard to hasten her return to the hotel. The old Keiko would have worked everything out by herself, but in this situation, she knew it wouldn't work. She needed to confide in someone. The time to handle this by herself was over. With renewed determination, she decided to contact the Director of National Intelligence, DNI, upon her return to the hotel. After a few hectic days, Pastor James finally had a moment to himself. Bart's condition wasn't improving and the doctors were saying a full recovery didn't seem likely. The pastors spent a lot of time visiting with and praying for families who lost loved ones from Bart's cult. Days blurred together as he ran himself ragged caring for the hurting and brokenhearted. So it was a pleasant surprise when he actually had a few hours to sit at a local diner to get a quick bite to eat. It was late morning, so he didn't feel guilty ordering a country omelet, home fries, and orange juice. As he looked around, he noticed people were slowly getting back to their old routines. The catastrophe was no longer fresh in their minds. People were talking loudly and joking with one another. The pastor smiled when he heard some elderly men arguing over sports. Massaging his forehead and taking a deep breath, Pastor James relaxed as he waited for his meal to arrive and closed his eyes. Immediately a vision came to him. It was a beautiful night. Every star in the sky was extremely luminescent and filled with indescribable beauty. Random shooting stars seemed to be hurled by a hunter's moon. Even though it was night, it held a peaceful beauty, captivating the moment. The earth was teeming with life and wonder, an oddity in a universe of chaos, a beacon of imagination shouting throughout the heavens. 
Life is forever present, and the tiny blue planet, the jewel of all creation, found no fault in anything within. Pastor James opened his eyes as he heard his plate being placed on the table in front of him. After thanking the waitress, he reflected on what he saw when his eyes were closed. It was the clear opposite of what he had shared with Bart some time ago. Was the horrible future averted, he thought. He wondered what had happened to change such a gloomy future, and thanked God for hearing his prayers. Only those associated with Sheol would survive the Great Purge. A day before the release of the Genovirian, all agents would receive a signal to micro-canisters they had previously received to release an individual hydrospray injection of the GeneX protein. At that moment, each agent would administer the protein, receiving immunity to the Genovirian and any other disease or ailment known and unknown to man. They would be part of the select few to receive this gift. The dark, Sheol official looked at his micro-canister. It had been the object of his affection for quite some time now, and as the days grew closer, the more beautiful it became. Sitting in his 780-square-meter, two-floor Burj Al Arab luxury suite in Dubai, the dark, Sheol official looked at the pristine waters of the Arabian Gulf and smiled. From here, he would shake the Arab world. No longer would they be divided nations, but one united people in their faith and one nation under his name. The setting sun reflected its amber hue off the Arabian waters as a flock of Audubon's shearwater birds dashed above the surface, causing ripple effects, enhancing the sun's reflection off the water. The dark, she-all official took in the moment and checked his watch. It was time. Looking at the micro-canister, it emitted a soft hum before a barely noticeable click. He quickly twisted the canister, removed the vial, and injected himself with the protein solution. There were a few lichen receiving the treatment days before the beginning of the purge. They were the generals of the operation who required inoculation a day before the Sheol agents. The dark, Sheol official closed his eyes and envisioned the future again. He didn't feel any different, but knew at this moment he was being changed from within. Benson Rockford looked at the micro-canister when he heard the humming and a soft click. It was late morning as he sat in the cabin of his luxury yacht in the Lincoln Harbor Yacht Club on the Hudson River. He had taken the day off, knowing the importance of today's date, being one of the select few before the worst plague to hit mankind. Benson's heart raced as he removed the vial. He was the only one on the boat, and no one expected him to be available for the rest of the day, including his wife. He slowly and carefully administered the inoculation and closed his eyes. After a few minutes, he felt an abnormal heartbeat, clammy hands, and an unnatural chill flow throughout his body. He opened his eyes but couldn't see clearly. Everything was blurred. Trying to stand up to get a glass of water, he stumbled to the floor. His legs weren't cooperating. Something wasn't right, he thought. There shouldn't be any side effects, similar to this associated with the injection of the protein. Benson's eyes widened as the reality of what was happening to him came to clarity. He was poisoned. He wasn't one of the select few. He was a loose end to be eradicated. Opening his mouth, he tried to call out for help, but even his voice betrayed him and wouldn't cooperate. In the following seconds, his body was racked with severe convulsions before he died in excruciating pain. Minutes later, a she-all agent walked up to Benson, confirmed the lack of vital signs, and prepared for the disposal of the body.